So sadly, I can relate to way too much of that video. Um, For those that don't know me, my name is Byron Smith. I am one of the elders here at Redemption Church. You may have seen my wife, Carla Smith. She's often at the regroup table or uh, teaching in children's. Or I'm sure you've seen uh, one of my four kids, Henry, Bethany, Meredith, and Sydney, sprinting up and down the hallway after uh, service. One of those is is probably mine that's doing that. Um, It's my great honor and privilege today to be able to give this uh, sermon on this special day, uh, Father's Day. Um, But before I kick that off, um, just kind of in light of the the videos here, if you could just take a moment and think about, it doesn't necessarily have to be your father, but think about a man in your life that has played a significant positive role um, in where you are today. Whether that's your dad, your husband, a brother, maybe it's a coach or teacher. And I'm hoping right now we can just give them like a big round of applause for the time they've spent with each of us. So today, my talk is going to be around leaving a legacy of faith and why this is critical for us, Um, and hopefully I can convey that message. Uh, But before I get started, I'd like to to kick off in prayer. Now, Lord, I'd just like to uh, thank you for uh, those men who who everyone just clapped for, Lord. Um, I thank you for putting them in their lives, in my life. Um, Lord, and I especially thank those men of Redemption Church, Um, who strive to live righteous in your eyes, Lord, Uh, who strive to live by the faith, God. And I just pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit be with us uh, today and especially with me uh, as I give this uh, talk, Lord, and that um, your words would come through and not mine, God. Your message would come through and uh, not mine, Lord, and uh, that you would give... Give each of us the heart to, to listen to the Spirit today, Lord. In your Son's name, I pray all these things. Amen. So, what I'd like to do is start off and bring up what I consider the most important verse to think about in today's uh, sermon. Now, if you have a Bible, we're mainly going to be camped out in Hebrews 11, so you can, you can actually go there if you want to settle on a spot, but... I thought I'd call up 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5 as as this important verse. So I'm going to read this now. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And the reason I call up this verse um, is because of some similarities. One is... Paul's um, expressing this idea of God's power in faith. And I hope to convey just a little bit of that. But the bigger similarities we'll start with is this first line. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I don't know if you can see it up here, but there is some weakness and fear and trembling going on. So I feel good that I'm close to Paul like this. Um, And so, you know, I'm going to ask several of you, and when I say several, I mean all of you, to be praying for me while I'm up here giving this sermon today. Um, The other one is, uh, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Now, in Paul's case, he's intentional about this. He wants the Holy Spirit to overwhelm the people. Uh, He doesn't want people to attach themselves to a speaker. In my case, I'm from Texas. And anyone who watched the Republican debates and saw Rick Perry, you know we Texan men cannot speak with wise and persuasive words. So 
that's just a stumbling block to begin with. You know, the interesting thing is, though, Texas women, sharp, pointed words that cut through things. Texas men, bumbling, stumbling on ourselves. There might be a correlation here. I'll leave it up to you to decide, but just just maybe. Um, but that's his background for kind of where I'm headed. Um, and now I'm going to take a very hard downshift, if we can go to this next slide. This is a sad truth. Does anyone know what all of these people have in common? All of these people are famous people who have passed away this year. Right? Pretty incredible list. All of these people have some sort of legacy they've left behind. All of you men that were the recipients of that video with the kids and the wives talking about you, all of the men that were clapped for, right, we're going to end up the same way, right? Someday we're going to pass. It doesn't matter how much we exercise, how good we eat, what we do, there will be that day. And so the question I want to bring to you today is, what will be your legacy? When you're gone and your son can't call you up and ask for advice, what is he going to know about you? What will you have taught him, prepared him, that he can lean on? What will your daughter say when culture is telling her she has to look 105 pounds? What will she know about you to have told her that's not the truth? What will be your legacy? So when we think about legacy, there's kind of two things that we often think about in terms of legacy. One is this idea of an intentional legacy. And mostly what I think about in terms of intentional legacy is financial. Right? There's money. We, set, we all create wills. If you haven't, please do. Uh, there's stocks. There's bonds. There's portfolios. Many of you here own farms. You leave your farms to your family. Other businesses. Um, there's life insurance. And by the way, life insurance is an interesting one. Anyone who actually doesn't own a motorcycle but likes all those motorcycles out there and you want a motorcycle, just come home and tell your wife, hey, I upped the uh, life insurance policy by 300000 I I did that and all of a sudden uh, you know, I get rock climbing magazines on my coffee table. I don't, don't want to rock climb, but all right. So if you want something, something adventurous, up your life insurance. There's also other intentional legacies like community service. I mean, people are just known for things. Um, you know, whether that's teaching, coaching, working with um, adolescents on different things. You know, people leave legacies behind of community service. But there's also this idea of these unintentional legacies. And sometimes unintentional legacies aren't always so good. Um, so I call that a couple things here. Family traits and DNA. You know, when a, a child is born, it's interesting because you might look at the, the baby and say, oh, look how sweet. She's got her mommy's chin. That is so cute. And you start to get over 40 and they're like, ooh, look, he's getting his dad's nose. Wow, that's, that's terrible. Or you go to the doctor when you're over 40 and all of a sudden it's, well, I see in your me- medical history you've got colon cancer, you've got gout. You, like, really? I've got to worry about all this stuff now? Or how about uh, mannerisms? This is an odd one to me, because you leave your parents, you know, when you're in college, you don't really spend a ton of time with them, and yet you've got the same exact mannerisms. I walk around with something in my hand when I speak, because that's what my dad did. I haven't been around him in a while, but that's what he does. Or, or maybe you women, just maybe, hypothetically, 
that after you've yelled at your kids, you think, wow, boy, I sounded just like my mom did 20 years ago. Isn't that awesome? But there's this idea of things that we intentionally do that we leave behind, but there's this idea of sometimes unintentional legacies that we leave uh, behind. Well, what about faith? Where does faith sit in this? And we can kind of bring up the next. If you are intentional about your faith, it will be an intentional legacy. If you're not intentional about your faith, it will not be a legacy. You have to make the decision, am I intentional about my faith or am I not? Because if you're not, if it's in a closet all alone by yourself, uh, which, is, which is great to go to God with, but if you're not bold in your faith, no one's going to know about it, and it's not going to be a legacy. See, are you preparing your family and your kids, your friends, when you're not there? Are you teaching them? It's not like you can hand down a faith and say, hey, this is my faith, it's going to be yours. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there is this aspect of teaching it, preparing them, letting them be ready when you're not there for them. And so, why is this important? So I want to bring up, what is faith in the eyes of God? So if we turn to Hebrews 11.1, 1, and I think actually Steve Mount mentioned this verse a few services ago. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And if I could just sum this up and boil it up into one little phrase, it is, do you trust in Jesus in all aspects of your life? See, we as Christians, we say we've put our trust in Jesus in the most important decision we can make, right? Our salvation. But yet we go through life every day and we don't put that same level of trust in other aspects of our life. I, I'm the world's worst at this. Let me just say it up front. I am terrible at this. I am a planner, which means I like to control things. Which means like I like to have my control on this area of my life. And I'll give God the area of my life which I think I can't control. As if I'm giving him something. Or as if I really think I can control this other stuff. But that's what I try to do. And so if we look at Matthew 6, 25 through 34, what does Jesus say about people like me doing that? Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? O oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So going back and looking at Hebrews 1. Being sure of what we hope for. Our hope should rest solely in Jesus. Certain of what we do not see. Our certainty should be in what he's done for us what he's doing today in our live, lives, and what he will do through us. That should be our certainty. So then I start to ask myself, well, I need to understand more about faith. And the question I start to wrestle with is, is faith our own doing? And the answer 
that came back to me in reading Scripture was, no, it's actually a gift from God. We can look at Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right-hand throne of God. When I read this verse, I immediately think about Peter walking on water. When he had his eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith, he could walk on water. When he looked at the wind and his circumstances, he sunk. See, we do the same thing. When we look at Jesus and focus on Jesus and spend time with Jesus, we mature in our faith. It's when we look at our circumstances and say, hey, how can I get faith out of these circumstances that we're going to sink? Romans 12:3. In accordance with the measure of faith, God has given you. And then Ephesians 2.8. For it is grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The author and perfecter of your faith is Jesus. So what kind of value then as this gift does God place on faith. I mean, it is a gift. It's not like we're trying to earn this. Um, So what value? Well, interestingly, enormous value. Hebrews 11.6 just really struck me. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's not by obedience. It's not by works. By faith. And it doesn't say it's unlikely that you can. It is impossible to please God without faith. Are you coming to Him with faith? If you look at the remaining section of Hebrews 11, and I'm not going to read all this, but if you just want to peruse it sometimes... By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, the walls of Jericho. By faith, by faith, by faith. This isn't some obscure passage where you've got to get 20 theologians together to try to decipher what exactly is the context here. What's the author talking about? It's by faith, by faith, by faith. It's like a two-by-four. The author can't really say it anymore. In fact, at the end of it, it says they could go on and on and on about it. It's by faith. And so this next verse, Hebrews 10:38, I think gives us a little insight into why it's so important, but I'm going to dive into that in a minute. But I wanted to read this. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. The term shrinks back, um, it kind of struck me as, as an interesting term, so I, I asked Matt to, to pull it uh, for me to... I could better understand the origin and and how it's used throughout. And interestingly, it's originally meant as a military term where a vessel might lower its sail and drop anchor to try to hide around a cove to prevent itself from being in a battle. And it later became known in Greek classic literature as basically to retreat, to hide. Um, And I don't think it's an accident that this author is using 
this idea of this military term of retreating. And the idea here at this time was to convey the message that we're, we're not supposed to shrink back and hide to preserve our faith. To preserve our faith, we boldly go. We're in Christ's victory. You know, we, we've been commanded to go out into the world. That's how you preserve your faith and grow it. You don't hide. So, like I said, I think this kind of hinted at it, but if we could go to the next slide. Why is this so important, uh, this idea of faith uh, to God? And what I came away with is, because I believe it's the greatest fight that we will ever be a part of. Why is it the greatest fight that we'll ever be a part of? Well, because it's Jesus' fight. Now, when I think of fights, honestly, what I think about is people who fight with disease like cancer, wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, World War II, a big topic lately. Um, I think about children in NICUs fighting for their lives. All of those things are true, and all of those things are fights. But those are fights the world is going to constantly throw at us. Those are the world's battles. Not that they aren't important, but those are the world's battles. The fight we're talking about here is God's fight. See, we already have victory in Jesus, and we should be thrilled with that. But he has left us in this fight so that we can take part in this victory with him. So Hebrews 6, 10 through 18. And this is a long one. I'm sure I'll mess this up here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit in all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. All right, as a little bit of an aside, because I am a geek, when y'all read the Belt of Truth, does anyone ever picture Batman? You know, putting that on there. Matt would appreciate that. If Matt was here, Matt would appreciate the Batman reference there. But whenever I read that, that's what I always think about. Um, It's no accident the author is using all of these military terms. He's describing a warrior. See, God doesn't give you this gift of faith and say, hey, Merry Christmas, take this faith and just leave it on the kitchen table. He's giving you weapons in a battle that he wants you and me to use. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. He's not trying to be used hyperbole. Paul understands this is a fight. And if we don't, we can turn to this next one, someone else does understand that it's a fight. 
Satan. Satan knows he is in a battle. And I'm not sure about all of you, but um, if you've ever, and I've used this reference before, if you've ever played sports, and you've ever played a team that you thought you were going to just destroy, and they came ready to fight and ready to battle that day, and all of a sudden you found yourself in a fight, you kind of know what this means to be in a fight that you weren't aware about. See, Satan knows this. And Satan knows that if he can just lure you into this idea that you're not fighting with him, then he can beat you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. See, I picture this, this lion roaming around and, you know, as a dad, if you're in this situation, right, you would want to gather your family behind you. Well, there might be a day where you would say, hey, lion, get my wife out here. Come on. You know, no, I'm just kidding, sweetie. That would never happen. Or, you know, there might be a day you take one of your kids and say, here, take that. No, we'll run. We'll make it. No, Henry, that's no, that would never happen, son. No, no. In all seriousness, right, you would want your family behind you scooting back. But even better than that, what you would want is to have prepared them for that situation. Hey, if you're ever out there and I'm not out there, this is how you defend yourself. This is how you defeat Satan. This is how you destroy the lion. Um, this, this term devour was another one that just kind of struck me as, as an odd term. And so I asked Matt again if he would pull that for me. And it means what you think it means in terms of complete, you know, consumption but it also means which i thought was uh, interesting was to consume wholly with grief so those little girls up there those little boys we saw in the videos satan is prowling around looking at them saying by the time they are 20 i'm going to leave them depressed with no hope that's my goal i want them empty so it's not just this idea that he's blatantly trying to destroy us he's subtly trying to create false hope in all of us and he'll use anything right he'll use culture i mean you go to the mall and you know this changed for me as a father i I go down the mall i see some of the shops and you know the pictures on them it's like oh boy can i cover my girl's eyes they don't need to be seeing that they don't need to think that that's what they need to be when they grow up or i think about the pressure right now on on boys I mean, going to church just is not cool, right? I mean, that's just not a cool thing. If you want to be part of the club, you don't, you don't do that. There's a lot of pressure that culture puts on, in place on our kids. There's other things, though. Satan will use things that we deem maybe as good things. Religion, for example. I look at Mark one twenty three. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit called out, What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? I don't know if it's ever struck you as, I mean, it's just odd. This, this demon is in the synagogue listening, basically, to the service. He's not there to get better. He's not trying to redeem himself. He's there so that he can use what he's hearing to destroy the people that are there. He'll do it with these sermons. He will. He'll use anything he can. The sad thing is, he'll use you. I mean, that's a scary thought for me to think about Satan will try to use me to destroy my family. He'll use anything. And so we have to decide, are we in a fight with him or not? 
One of the mysterious things, I think, about this idea of faith and maturing in your faith um, is this idea that with it, Jesus can do anything in your life. Without it, he's limited into what he can do with your life. Um, and, and so Mark 6, 4 just really has always struck me. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed by their unbelief. For the longest time, I struggled with this verse. And then I had an incident in my own life where it really just stung me. And and I I realized... um, kind of what this first meant. About two years ago, around two years ago, I was in a job that I just hated. I'll be honest. I hated it. And I had talked to, to Carla, and let's be honest, I got her permission to, uh, if I had to, walk into the boss's office one day and say, I've had enough. I'm done. Um, and so I was at that point. And there was probably four other people like me who were in the same situation. And You know, every night we would go out to our internal job postings, and that next morning at coffee we'd be talking about, hey, did you see this job posting? Did you see this job posting? This one would be great for you. And so this went on for a couple months. And these people, one is a non-practicing Muslim, one's a non-practicing Catholic, and the other two I don't think have any sort of faith. Um, And in this time I was praying, and just clear as could be, Jesus told me, quit it, stop it. By the end of the summer, I'm going to have you in a job that you're going, to, you're going to like. I'm going to put you where I want you. Stop this. So at least I had a, enough faith where I obeyed that command. But when I was asked about it on those coffee mornings, I'd still go there because I hated my job and didn't want to be doing it. But um, I'd be in there with the coffee talking to them, and they would ask, why aren't you looking at all these postings? There's some great ones that we think you'd be really good at. You should be going out there. My answer was just, no, no, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Imagine what the story would have been had I told them, no, Jesus had told me to lay off, to trust in him, and by the end of the summer, I'm going to have a job. And by the end of the summer, I did have a new job. But they don't know why. They have no idea why. Now, I'm not saying Jesus isn't going to work in their life and he's going to convert them. That may very well happen, and and I pray that it does. But you know, that day in heaven when I'm up there and one of them's up there, Jesus isn't going to be able to put his arm around me and say, Hey, Byron, you see them? You helped with that. No. No, I'm not not going to be a part of that victory. Why? Because I wasn't mature enough in my faith. Because I was so stupid as to think, If I boldly proclaim that and it didn't come true, Jesus might look bad. How stupid, how weak of me to think that. But that's what I think about when I read now Mark 6, 4. But one thing I want to caution in that story about is, you know, this is about your own faith and the maturity of your own faith. You know, the temptation is to look at someone who is struggling constantly with illness or financial problems and, and the temptation is for us to say, you know what? You're just not mature in your faith. You just don't have faith. You need to trust in Jesus. Don't do that. Don't. Please don't do that. You don't know what Jesus is doing in that person's life. You know, I think we all have enough, certainly I do, 
problems with maturing in our own faith, that we should focus inward in our relationship with Jesus. Uh, and if we want to come alongside someone and pray for them, that's great. But don't judge them in their, in their faith. Um, so what I want to bring up, though, is uh, just kind of a, a little tongue-in-cheek ways to know if you need to mature in your faith. So if we can bring up that first one. If you think cats are demonic, you might need to mature in your faith. Matt, watch this video. <laughs> um, if your six-year-old child can say a longer prayer than you, then you might need to mature in your faith. This one happened to me, so I was like, whoa, I need to work on this. If you've ever grabbed a couple pieces of bread and extra juice during communion because you were hungry and needed a snack, come on, I know some of you have done this. You might need to mature in your faith. If your favorite verse starts out four score and seven years ago, hey, great line, but you need to work on your, uh, your, your faith. If you've ever sat through a sermon and thought, wow, I sure hope person X is paying attention to this sermon, he really needs it. You might need to mature in your faith. And finally, if you don't think that you need to mature in your faith, you definitely need to mature in your faith. We all do. It's an ongoing thing. Um, so finally, what are some practical applications to mature in your faith? And, and Matt just went through, you know, a whole sermon where you could take pieces, but I'm going to focus kind of on four specific areas that honestly are, are kind of rough for me to do. Um, and so more than anything, this is my heart coming out. But the number one is spend time in the word and prayer. James 5.13 Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Guess what? We're all in trouble all the time. We should be praying. James 4.7 Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Be still for a while. Listen for God. You'll be surprised what you hear. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Good work is great, but you should equip yourself first for that good work. Number two, share the gospel and your faith. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. In the presence of God and of Jesus, and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and dead, in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. It's not, it's not confusing in the language. Preach the word. Be bold. You're in Jesus' victory. Number three. Allow God to handle the transgressions against you. Hebrews 10.30 This one, let me just be honest, I struggle so much with. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. See, when we take revenge into our own hands, what we're saying basically is, Jesus, we don't have enough faith that you can, you can handle this. Let me handle this my way, because I know how to handle this. This one, like I said, is so, so very hard for me. Why? Because, you know, it's not going to be for years that ultimately 
you know, that this, this is wiped clean, that the slate is fine. And we all want, we want things now. Wait, I've been hurt now. I want to avenge now. But that's not what Scripture calls us to do. And finally, trust in God. Philippians 4, 6-7. through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I mean, there's going to be times, right, where we trust in Jesus and the outcome is not what we expect. It's not what we hoped for. But we have to decide whether we're going to put our trust in His sovereignty or ours. Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, what is our hope in? What does our certainty lie in? It lies in Jesus. And we should be boldly proclaiming that. And when we're not around to answer the hard questions, like I said, of our son, to say, you know what, this marriage is worth it. Work at it. He'll know where to turn. He'll know where the answers are because he's seen us look up the answers. Right? But we have to decide that. Imagine your lives if you... For those that did have someone in your life that passed on this faith, imagine your life if you didn't. Imagine your lives for those who never had that. What would have been different in your life had you had that father of faith or that grandfather of faith? So what I'm suggesting today is, let's leave that to our family. Dear Lord, I thank you, God, for this time. I thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit being with us today. Um, God, I, would, I just ask that you would be with all of us today as we leave and um, celebrate this Father's Day, God. And uh, I pray that you would uh, keep the Boswell safe upon their return. Um, and I just thank you, God, that you gave me this opportunity to share your word with um, this wonderful group of people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.